Psalm 65 on page 807. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. Indeed, Heavenly Father, we do um, give you thanks this morning um, for your faithfulness, for your, um, your loving kindness. Father, we thank you this morning for the beautiful sunshine um, outside, for the way that you indeed uh, water the earth and cause um, good things to grow, um, for the nourishment of mankind. Um, Father, we ask this morning um, that as we um, hallow this day, as we set it apart for worship and for rest as you've commanded us to do, that you would be faithful um, to us, that you would um, draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, um, that we might um, know your presence again, Father, um, on this day, on the Lord's day. I pray for our Sunday school time. I pray that you um, would give us wisdom as we continue to um, talk and discuss um, matters of your word. And we pray, Father, for our worship, um, that you would bless it with your presence. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. We've got a few things to pass out here. Uh, David and Lauren, maybe you all will help me with these things. Thank you. Um, This is just a handout again with the text of the study committee report that we're discussing. And along those lines, I want to make an announcement about um, an event on Friday. On this Friday, May uh 6th i guess it would be yeah right may 6th um jim pakta who is a ruling elder in our presbytery and a practicing um counselor um um, in our area he is a member of um, new saint peter's presbyterian church in dallas um, and part of their session Uh, jim was one of the members if you're a member of the study committee that produced this report um and um, he will be speaking on this coming Friday for our presbytery, giving a, a seminar um, before the meeting at 3.30 in the afternoon at Metrocrest Presbyterian Church in Carrollton. Um, so if that's interesting to you, if you'd like to hear, and he's going to be talking about the study committee report, giving his perspective as one of its authors, and um, just kind of leading a discussion for our presbytery about the report. So. If that's interesting to you, then you are more than welcome to come and be a part of that. Um, Jim is great, and I'm really grateful for him. uh, So 3.30 p.m. Friday at Metrocrest Presbyterian Church in Carrollton. And if you want more information or you want to go, just let me know, and I'll be happy to uh, give you um, any other details that you need. Um, So we have... um, you know, for several weeks now, been working through this study committee report. I'm thinking about human sexuality, um, with the aid of of the uh, wisdom of uh, the men who uh, were on the committee that produced um, uh, this human sexuality report. Um, last week, and we were talking through the second. There are 12 statements that they worked together on and refined and put together to address issues around homosexuality and transgenderism and um, what it means to 
engage apologetically and pastorally with these issues in our culture. Um, so we've been working through the second statement, which has mainly to do with um, gender and, and sex and what the scripture teaches about those things. Um, last week, we concluded our discussion by um, looking at the, um, I guess it's the third paragraph there on that first page um, under the, the first statement. Uh, Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. And quoting from Galatians, um, should be 6.1 and then 2 Timothy 2. Um, and so we talked last week a lot about how um, this is a, a huge area of ministry for the church and um, to minister to those who, um, who are wrestling with these things and have even been harmed, perhaps have harmed themselves um, by um, decisions they've made around their gender um, in relationship to their, the sex that God has assigned and given to them chosen for them, um, and uh, that's going to be a huge area of ministry for us in the church. Um, let me go ahead and move into the third, or the next paragraph, the next section there in this statement. They, the, the report says, we recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature. Um, so the idea there, and there's a Westminster Shorter Catechism question that addresses this. Um, I can read that real quick. So 18 of the Westminster Shorter, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? Answer, the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell, this is after the sin of Adam and Eve, of course, consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So our catechism teaches and we believe the scriptures teach that that when man fell it 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 affected his whole being that his whole person um, was corrupted um, by his fall into sin um, that there was not any part of him that was left unmarred um, by his sinful nature um, that he uh, took upon himself really with his sin um, in the garden so the, the writers say, we recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. Um, and you probably could just remove the may there and just say, which includes how we think of our own gender and sexuality. Um, this is true generally for all of us, um, that we all deal with the corruption um, of our whole nature, um, and it affects all of us in every way. Um, so, so they're acknowledging that this is part of the experience, in some ways it should not surprise us about life in this fallen world, um, that there are men and women who struggle in very particular ways um, with um, uh, their internal sense of gender identity, to use that phrase from the previous sentence. Um, that this is part of what it means um, that all of our, 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 the corruption of our whole nature um, in the fall, which includes how we think about our own bodies and our own um, sexuality. Moreover, they say some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Uh, some, such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. And here they're just referring to this very rare um, but uh, situations that do exist where a person is born um, where their, their genitalia may not match um, their sex or there may be some problem with the development of their genitalia is essentially the, the situation they're describing there. And again, of course, that is another expression of the fallenness of our world, um, that, um, that things like that do exist, that there are those kinds of defects that people are, are just born with, and they have to live a particular complicated life in that way. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. I don't know what else to say about that. Um, any questions about this last sort of section here in this statement before we move on? We'll spend most of our time this morning in the, um, the third statement on original sin.
All right, well, let's spend some time thinking about original sin in more um, detail. And we'll be interacting a lot with our confession of faith here, which uh, you have in the back of your hymnals, and I'll direct you there when we get there. So original sin. So <clears throat> the report says, we affirm that from the sin of our first parents, we have received an inherited guilt and an inherited depravity. Um, uh, so those distinctions of those things are important. Um, uh, what we're saying is that um, within the Reformed tradition, what we believe is that when Adam and Eve fell, um, we received from them both guilt um, for their action, um, is imputed to us, is, is counted to us, and we also inherit um, depravity from them, which is the corruption of our whole nature. Um, that uh, statement that was in the previous um, paragraph. Um, now, it's important to say that when we talk about where things like total depravity, I'm sure many of you have heard that phrase, um, what we don't mean by that is that uh, human beings are as sinful as they could possibly be. Um, we actually don't think that's true at all. We think that um, there is um, in the scriptures and in our Reformed tradition a, a concept called common grace, common grace, um, which is the idea that God in his love and mercy actually restrains the wickedness of all men, um, regardless of whether they're not in the church or not, um, that all men are held back from how bad they could be if they were left to their own devices. Does that make sense? Um, that God is actually restraining the wickedness and sinfulness of men. Um, and, uh, and that's an important concept. So when we say total depravity, we don't mean that, that, that to be a sinner is to be as bad off as you could be. Rather, it means that um, you're totally depraved and that there's not one part of you that is free from the corruption um, of your sin nature that you have inherited. Um, from your first parents, um, that all of you is, that, that's the word total there um, is, is talking about, it's a comprehensive um, depravity, that might be a more, you know, specific way to say it, not an absolute depravity. Make sense? Any thoughts or questions about that? It's mm -hmm. a great question, Daniel. Yeah, so Daniel's asking, is the restraint that is, that is um, true in common grace, is that because of a sort of natural goodness of humanity in God's creation of them or God's more, just God's sustaining work, his spirit? I would say the latter, very much so. I'd say the latter. Um, certainly believe that mankind was created good um, in God's image, but we also would say that in the rejection of God's authority, um, and disobedience that took place in the garden, which was an act of rebellion, um, that, that man was, as, as the confession puts it, corrupted in his whole nature. Um, and so whatever goodness that we continue to have and, and be the ways that we're restrained from being as depraved as we might be um, as human beings um, is, is because of the active work of God's spirit, I would say. Um, the active work of his spirit restraining wickedness in men. Um, and, you know, it, you may look around the world and wonder, well, God doesn't seem to be doing a lot of restraining, right? Um, uh, particularly, um, you know, in, in certain times and places in history where um, men have been particularly uh, wicked. Um, but I really do think that this is true. Um, the Lord is kind and um, history is not um, as it would be without the active work of his spirit, just one unmitigated story of chaos and um, brutal violence and all of these things. Um, and certainly there are times when God, it seems as though, lifts restraint, um, not entirely, but, but more than at other times. Um, you could, I think, make the argument that some of what's happening in uh, Ukraine at this time, um, there is a, you know, a, that kind of thing is taking place, that the Lord in his providence and his wisdom is um, allowing wicked men for a time to, um, to have, you know, not free reign, but more reign than they usually do. Um, 
but we call this common grace. Um, it's important to say this because it's, it's um, for everyone. Um, common grace is for all, um, for the righteous as well as the wicked. Um, that this is part of God's nature um, that Jesus talks about, that he is kind um, to everyone. Um, and that, that's, a, that's an important thing. I think that's a great question, Daniel. But th- the answer simply is God is, is always sustaining the world and holding it back from, from total ruin, um, which is what we would do with it, we think, if we were left to our own devices. Yeah. Any other questions about that concept? Yes, ma'am. Well, certainly the wickedness that preceded the judgment of the flood and the the wickedness that was present at Sodom and Gomorrah was great and um, fully deserving the judgment of God. Um, And we would say that about any judgment that God enacts against humanity, that um, there is never any truly innocent persons um, that don't deserve the the judgment of God um, in, in any fundamental way. Um, and so what we would say is in examples like the ones you've noted um, with the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah or with uh, other you know, times of God's judgment, um, that the Lord in those circumstances chooses as is his, his freedom and authority and right um, to call those people to account for their sins and to require judgment of them. And it is certainly true that he does not always do that, um, that that there are other times and places where God, in this life at least, does not seem to call um, sin to account and judge in that kind of uh, way that is where we can see clearly his intervening hand. Um, This is a a pattern of one of the mysteries of history, I think, is why God judges in one place and calls sinners to account um, and does not in others, in this life, I mean. Well, I would, I would not say so. I would say that the Spirit was, um, was certainly present in restraining human sin before, before Jesus, is, uh, before the day of Pentecost. Um, that, the, that the Spirit was given to the church in a particular way at the day of Pentecost. Um, but I think we should be careful about drawing too hard of a distinction between the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and his work in the New Testament. Um, I think this, the Spirit of God has always been at work um, in his creation um, since its beginning. Yeah, yeah, and, and specifically about your question, Alexis, I would say that even the depravity and the wickedness that you see before the flood and, be, and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, those things, um, they could have been worse. That humanity was not as, as wicked as it might have been without God's kindness. Um, that God was restraining. And, and of course, part of what he was doing was protecting um, in his restraining. He was protecting a people for himself. He was protecting Noah and his wife and their children. He was protecting um, Lot and his family. He was protecting Abraham. Um, and that's, that's a part of this as well. Um, part of the kindness of God is that he would protect um, a seed, a holy people for himself uh, from the depravity of humanity, from the wickedness of humanity. All right, let's, um, let me continue to move on here through this statement. Um, from this original corruption, which is another sort of picture for original sin, from this original corruption, uh, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable. And this is a really important point as we start to think about in detail questions like, you know, my desires, any desire that I have that is contrary to the word of God and to the law of God, what is my responsibility for that desire, right? This is a, a, a fundamental question, not only for those who um, struggle with same-sex attraction, but for anyone who, you know, all of us who are sexual sinners, um, which is all of us. Um, what do we 
how do we think about those desires that we have that are contrary to the law of God? Um, from this original corruption, which is itself sinful and for which we are culpable, proceed all actual transgressions. Um, so what the report is saying there, and it's mirroring the language of our um, confessional standards, is that that original corruption is not just something that happened to Adam and Eve way off in the distance that sort of trickles down to us. Um, actually, the corruption that we have um, is itself sinful on our parts, and we are culpable for that corruption, as though we ourselves had caused it. Um, does that make sense? That, that we are held, you can't just sort of pawn it off on Adam, you know, um, your, your sinful desires, and say, well, that's all, you know, God's going to take care of Adam. I'm not really responsible for uh, the corruption of my nature and all the actual sins that, per, that come out of that corruption. Um, what we would say is that, no, that you are actually culpable, even though it's true you didn't choose to be born, you didn't choose, you didn't have any uh, responsibility in a fundamental way for Adam's sin, of course, um, that was Adam's sin. Still, you are responsible before God, you are culpable um, for uh, your own corrupt uh, nature, um, that this is something that God holds you to account for, um, and, and, and that is important because it has to do with how we think about desires. Um, so all the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains in part even after regeneration. So there's another, I mean, we're doing a lot of sort of fine distinctions here, but we would also say that that corruption of your nature is not entirely reversed in the new birth um, when the Lord regenerates you and, and, um, and unites you to his son, Jesus, that there still are um, aspects of your nature that remain corrupted um, by original sin. And in this life, you are not made perfectly holy. Um, perfect holiness only comes to you in the next life um, um, after death when your soul is made perfect in holiness and then on the last day your body is raised holy from the dead. Um, so all the outworkings of our corrupted nature, which remains even after regeneration, are truly and properly called sin. Uh, let me read from the Westminster Confession, which as I mentioned is in the back of your hymnal, so I can find it here. A lot of other things in the back of your hymnal. Chapter 6 is on page 852 of your hymnal. Chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. So the, um, the standards, the confession states, our first parents, Adam and Eve, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his, holy, his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they, that is Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin. And of course, this picture of death in our sinful nature is one of the most prominent images the scriptures use, right? Paul talks about it in Ephesians. You think about the valley of the, the dry bones, the dead um, people in Ezekiel, um, all, all over the place. This idea of being dead in your sin is a is a powerful one in the scriptures. And so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So nothing of Adam and Eve and their uh, progeny was, was spared from being uh, defiled um, by that original sin. They, that is Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin um, so the guilt of their sin was passed down um, to generations to come, and the, the penalty of death was passed down um, to their uh, generations. And also what was passed down was their corrupted nature, um, conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. And of course, that word ordinary generation is a key one because our Lord Jesus um, was not conceived by ordinary generation, but by the uh, direct intervention of the Spirit. Um, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, I think that word disabled is really important, we're 
were not able to do anything about um, it. Uh, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly disposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Um, So this this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 7, right? That um, those things that I, I want to do, I, I don't do. And those things I, I don't want to do, I, I, don't, I can't stop doing them. Um, this reality that, um, that we have a nature that is against um, the law of God, that, that our orientation, so to speak, is um, to rebel against God. Um, and it is from this original corruption um, that all of our actual sin proceeds. Um, that, that that's why we sin, uh, because of this fundamental problem that we have and the corruption of our nature. Uh, this corruption of nature, this is the fifth um, paragraph here, during this life remains, does remain in those that are regenerated. So even after the work of the Spirit, even after the new birth, um, even after union with Christ, um, the corruption of your nature still remains in this life. Um, And though it be through Christ pardoned, so you are forgiven um, of the responsibility that you have for your corrupt nature and for all the sins that you commit that come out of it. Um, It is pardoned uh, through Christ. It is mortified through Christ. That word mortified, of course, just means to put to death when it comes to the word mortal. Um, So you're putting to death, in some sense, your corrupt nature um, as you embrace repentance and grow in holiness. Um, Yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So the motions thereof are talking about um, the desires. Essentially, that's what motions mean there. Um, um, your, Your corrupt nature and all the desires that you have for things that are not according to the law of God are both truly and properly sin before the Lord. Um, They're sinful, um, and you are responsible for them. And without the pardon of Christ, without the forgiveness um, that Christ offers um, in your union with him, um, you'd be lost. And then the sixth paragraph, every sin, both original and actual, Um, So Adam and Eve's sin, and then the actual sins that we all commit, being a a transgression of the righteous law of God, in contrary thereunto, does, or doth, in its own nature, bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death, with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Um, So this is the, the lot of humanity. This is, we believe, um, what is true about us um, as human persons, this, this total corruption of our nature, um, this uh, being disabled in, in terms of not being able in and of ourselves to, to do anything but sin, essentially, um, is what the, um, the confession states and what we believe the scripture teaches, um, that we are utterly reliant upon God's mercy and grace um, to, to be delivered from death. Um, and that, that sinfulness is expressed um, not only in the actual things that we do, but even in the motions of our heart and the internal desires that we have, which are in and of ourselves fundamentally opposed to God and his law. So that's the bad news about human nature <laughs> um, and you and me. Um, any, any questions or thoughts about that? Yes, Michael. Yes. Uh huh. So often we often we think that. I have committed an act of guilt. Mm-hmm. Original sin is kind of hard to think of in that way. Yeah. But are we meant to think of original sin as somehow? somehow we partook in that action or are we supposed to think of guilt differently as not necessarily being the original sin is imputed to us mm-hmm. yeah now, i think probably the former is what i would say that we we can be we have we have guilt um for um 
And this is, re- this is because God, and this is something we really, is almost alien to us um, as 21st century Western people, um, that we actually can be guilty for things that we didn't ourselves you know, do. So be- because of the, the federal nature of, um, because Adam was the federal head of humanity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I'm going to open that door today. I appreciate it, though. Yeah, I wasn't really ready to open that door. Um, I think I see where you're going. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's a complicated question. Um, certainly, God will judge cultures and nations and peoples for sins that they're not directly responsible for. I mean, there's no, you know, when, when judgment came upon um, Jerusalem, um, you know, it, finally and ultimately from the Babylonians, it was not only because of the sin of that generation, obviously, right? It was because of the accumulation of the idolatry and the hard-heartedness and the the things that had happened previously um, in Israel's history. Um, and fundamentally, it was because of the, the unfaithfulness of her kings um, and their um, lack of repentance, their lack of leading the people in conformity to the law of God as they had been commanded to do in the law um, itself. Um, and so it's certainly true that God will, you may experience judgment in your life, um, for things that you're not responsible for. And that doesn't make God unrighteous or unfair. And, and part of that is because of the corruption of your whole nature, right? Um, it's part of what we're saying is that it's, a, it's actually um, impossible for God from a you know, sort of philosophical standpoint to unfairly judge someone. Does that make sense? Because there are no innocent victims, um, so to speak, um, that everyone, um, even, you know, little babies are born with a corrupted nature, um, and are guilty of sin. Um, and that's, I think that's an, and, but, but certainly as we think about the way that judgment works in history, as God does judge certain people and cultures for certain sins, it is, it is certainly possible that you would you know, experience judgment for something you're not, you didn't directly cause or a decision that you didn't necessarily make. I think we can certainly say that. Yeah. Yes, Kim. You're reading for the cate- confession here? Okay. Oh, I see. All the outworkings of our corrupted nature, a corruption which remains even in part after regeneration, are truly and properly called sin. Yes, that's certainly the groundwork is being laid to make arguments about um, that even if you are a celibate uh, person, um, to the extent that you experience um, same-sex attraction, that attraction itself is sinful. And that they're going to lay that out in more detail. But yes, you're exactly right that that's the theological groundwork that is being laid to make that claim, um, which is a claim that the report makes, um, and rightly so in my opinion, um, that, that a same-sex person, or sorry, a person who is attracted to the same sex is responsible um, before God uh, not only for any sort of actions of the will which confirm that attraction, um, you know, like lusting after another person, for example, um, but they're actually also responsible for um, the attraction itself before God. The attraction itself is sinful 
uh, because it is against the law of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that will be, yeah, like I said, played out in more detail. All right, so every, da, 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 every, or every sin, um, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. And that's kind of what I was saying a minute ago, that, that we're, <laughs> we're, we're all liable to the wrath of God, right? None of us um, can plead innocence uh, before God on our own merits. Um, God is always, I mean, you know, even the, the course of human history is just one long story of the steadfast and love and patience of God um, toward the human race um, because it might have been otherwise, right? Um, it could have ended in Genesis 3 and God would have been utterly justified in ending it, ending the story. Um, and he didn't and he hasn't. The story keeps going on and on and every new day is literally um, a sign. It, it only human history continues to proceed day by day only because of God's patience and God's kindness um, that he is, you know, as the New Testament says, giving men time to repent, um, that, that he's even giving them that opportunity is a sign of his mercy and grace. Um, and I think that is a, that certainly as you, as you may wrestle with questions about, you know, evil and the goodness of God or, you know, these kinds of things, I, I think working through these, these ideas of original sin are really important because I think what we see is that, that God is actually kind fundamentally toward the human race um, because he, of all, it's impossible to argue, I think, that God is not really patient with humanity. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to think about when you think about what it means um, how do how we think about God's judgment in relationship to his goodness. We must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. Um, this is how, what do we do, right? What do we do in a relationship to, um, well, before, before, before I say that, let me look at this footnote. So, um, Burkhoff, the footnote number two in the previous sentence, every sin, original and actual, deserves death and renders us liable to the wrath of God. In theological language, the footnote says, actual sin is distinguished from the original sin we inherited from Adam. Um, but importantly, um, our English language lets us down a little bit here, actual should be understood in a comprehensive sense of the word act. Um, as Burkhoff puts it, the term does not merely denote those external actions which are accomplished by means of the body, but all those conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from original sin. Um, so actual sin there is not just, you know, things you do physically, um, but anything that happens in your heart is part of actual sin um, as well. Um, so what do, we, what do we do about this? We must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins, particularly. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith, 15, paragraph 5, talks about this. And this is on page oh, 857. Um, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. Um, and so this is part of what sanctification looks like, um, is, uh, you know, maybe when you start to grow in holiness, um, you're, just, you're just trying to stop being so bad all the time, you know, like, you're just trying to tone it down a little bit. Um, and as, as, you, um, as you grow in holiness, um, what you begin to do is you begin to, by the Spirit, narrow in on and understand um, the particular habitual sins that you are afflicted with. And so your, your focus isn't now just on not being so bad all the time. It, it becomes, well... I treat my spouse in this particular way, right, which is sinful, and I need to repent of that. 
and I really need to do work to think about my heart and and why it is that I treat my spouse in that way or my children or whomever it might be um, and so you really begin to growth and holiness is often very connected to understanding your sin more deeply and truly um, so that you can repent of it more particularly or we might say more specifically um, in today's parlance um, you know specific sin should be repented of specifically it's probably the kind of language we use more naturally now um, and, so, and so that's part of what our responsibility is we shouldn't be as people who are in Christ and we shouldn't be overwhelmed by this bad news about our total corruption and all of these things um, because of the regeneration of the spirit which actually frees us um, it pardons our sins it, it, it absolves us of the responsibility that we have before God in terms of guilt um, for our sin and it frees us to begin to mortify our sin and to put it to death and the way that we do that as the as the report writers say here is it's not just to generally turn from our sins but to understand our specific particular sins and to turn from those specific particular sins um, themselves questions or thoughts about that make sense I mean, I really do think this is true. I mean, I was having a conversation with somebody in the past week or two about this, just as they are becoming more aware of their sins. And I, that can feel overwhelming, right? Um, what I want us to see, what I want you to see, is actually it's a sign probably of God's mercy to you and your growth and maturity, that he's opening your eyes to your sin in a new way that you were perhaps blind to three years ago or five years ago. Um, it's not that you're a worse sinner now than you were before. It's just that you understand it better now, you know? And, um, and that's actually a lot of what maturity is, is truly understanding um, your own corruption and the own, and all of us have different, you know, there are different grooves for all of us, right, um, that we fall into um, because of our stories, because of God's providence, because of just the mysteries of how he makes us. Um, all of us have particular sins that are different from one another. I mean, there are a lot of you know similarities, but but we all struggle with particular things, and um, and that's wisdom is being able to name those things well and being able to turn from them. And it, it's impossible to turn from those sins really, unless you can name them, unless you can contemplate them um, for yourself so God is kind if he's doing that to you he's, he's, it's kindness thoughts or questions alright so repentance what is repentance that is we ought to grieve for our sin hate our sin Turn from our sin unto God and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments, which is basically just a direct quotation of uh, Westminster 15.2. So I won't go there and read that. But that's, that's a great definition of repentance. What is repentance? Well, it's grieving your sin. It's hating your sin. It's turning from your sin to God and endeavoring to walk with God in obedience to his commandments um, here on out. Um, I, mean, I love that comprehensive picture um, of what repentance is. And, and friends, I really think this is important. We, we, should, we should talk about repentance as though it is something that we are actually called to do and enabled to do by the Spirit of God, right? Repentance should not be some sort of like an ideal of the spiritual life that is out there for us someday. Now, repentance is what you're called to today. And this is the fundamental act of Christian discipleship, faith and repentance. Um, it's impossible um, for you to walk with God without being repentant. It doesn't mean your repentance is going to be perfect, um, but it means that it will be present, right? That there will be repentance in your life. And repentance in your life is grieving your sin, that it should bring you sorrow um, as you have your eyes more and more opened 
to how you stand against God and against others. It should make you sad. Um, you should grieve your sin. You should hate it. Despise it. It should, um, you know, you should respond in a visceral way to it, right? When you realize that you've done it again. Um, that thing that you don't want to do. Um, it should cause a response in you in that way. And you, sh- you should have evidence that you're turning from it. That doesn't mean you're not going to turn back to it. In the future, you probably will. It's the story of repentance is one of sin and confession and repenting again. But that, that at least for a time, at least for a moment, right, you're turning away, you're, you're putting it to death. Um, you're choosing not to, to think that thought or to, um, to act in that way or to use those words that can't just came out of your mouth. You're, you're turning away from it. And you're uh, turning to God. Um, you're not just turning away from your sin towards some kind of, I don't know, you know, moral betterment, but you're actually turning to God himself because you realize that what has happened in your sin is that you've turned away from God that it's impacted your communion with him. And so you're turning away from your sin back to communing with the Lord. This, of course, is why we, I mean, there are many reasons why, but one of the reasons why we have weekly corporate confession of sin is to give you an opportunity at least once a week to have just a formal, somebody that will say, right, just just hold on for a moment and be quiet before the Lord and think about what you've been up to the last couple of days, right? And acknowledge it to him so you can turn away from it, so you can receive, again, the good news of your forgiveness. And it's a really kind pastoral thing, I think, for you, um, for all of us, for me, um, to have that weekly corporate confession and personal confession of sin, because it gives us an opportunity to do this. And to endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. So part of repentance is sincerely committing yourself, again, to holiness and to putting that sin away um, behind you um, entirely. And you don't do that with your fingers behind your back, right? Um, You do that genuinely. You do that sincerely. Um, That's a part of what true repentance is, is doing that with your whole heart. And I think this is often where our repentance becomes imperfect, right? Um, Because we try to do that, but we... In some sense, we are, you know, there are, there are clauses, right? There are mitigating circumstances um, in our, if we really get down to the bottom of our hearts, right? Where we can exercise the clause to engage in that sin again, because who knows, right? What might happen um, that would justify it. Um, any thoughts or questions about that idea of repentance, what repentance is? I think it's really important. I'm glad just to have the opportunity to talk about this um, because this is what we're called to do. We're called to um, be a repentant community, a community of repentance with one another and with the Lord. I think that kind of language is, you know, we don't often use that kind of language for the church. We talk about us being a community of love or, you know, service. Or, but we should, we should talk about being a community of repentance. That's a it's a biblical concept and biblical language for who we want to be with one another and with the Lord. All right, any final thoughts or questions before we wrap up? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, 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 I do know what you're saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question, Donna. So Donna's asking about shame and guilt, how they interact, and whether we should think about shame as something we should entirely try to get rid of, or if there are aspects to shame that are good for us. Is that basically? Yeah, I think this is an important question. Um, there is a, um, uh, some of you may have heard of the work of Brene Brown, who's a, a psychologist and a writer um, who's written a lot about shame. And I like Brene Brown a lot. I've read many of her books. Um, I think she's really insightful in a lot of ways in a kind of common grace way. Um, but I do think this is a place where I have some difference with her um, and generally with movements within the psychological world today that's, that sees shame as almost an unmitigated bad thing. I don't think the scriptures speak in that kind of way. I think there are ways that we should be. The shame is actually a, you know, can be a really healthy thing for us to feel. Um, there are things that I've done that I should be ashamed of. Um, and I'm certain that the same is true for each one of us. Um, there are parts of my story that bring me shame. And, um, and they're just aspects of, you know, being a human person in the world um, that I, you know, there should be a healthy sense of shame. I, I shouldn't want to, to flaunt all the things <laughs> that are most, um, you know, either ways that I have been sinned against or ways that I've sinned against others. I, I, I should be held back. I think there should be a healthy sense of um, hiddenness to some of those things before everyone else. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be open and honest with them before the Lord or before certain groups of people, um, but, but shame in general I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, I guess is what I would say. I think we, I think we have to think about what's behind the shame. Are there places where we feel the freedom that we should have in Christ not every circumstance is the same um, in terms of how we handle ourselves and how we clothe ourselves and those kinds of things, uh, metaphorically speaking. So I don't know if that's, that's a general answer, but yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't talk about, and I, I do think there are some consequences. I think one of the things that we're seeing today in culture is, our culture is a, a declining presence of shame around things that were once considered to be shameful. And I don't think that's been a positive development in our culture, um, I would say. Um, I'm not endorsing everything that happened previously around um, specific sins, or, but I don't think the answer is just to try to say no one has anything to be ashamed about. Because <laughs> we do. I do, you do, we all do. We all have things to be ashamed about. All right, let's, uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we, we give you thanks um, for, your, for your mercy and your grace, Father. Um, may we grow in our gratitude for it each day. May we grow um, even as a community of repentance, Father. And our repentance, not, generally, not only generally of our sin, but of our particular sins. May you give us wisdom to see those things and the grace and mercy of your spirit to turn from them into you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.